Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each Monday morning we join the Liquid Markets Group's market meeting to get the latest update across all traded markets. So good morning and welcome to Monday the 28th of September. We start the week with Melbourne finally seeing some restrictions of their COVID lockdowns following the state's health minister's resignation. And whilst our former PM calls on the RBA to fund Australia's growing deficit, the Australian government is preparing to hand down one of the more important budgets in October. This follows move to remove the responsible lending standards, a decision solely to free up lending. And we are now just five weeks out from the US elections. Are the global markets watching? Will China's reported wide-scale COVID-19 vaccine deployment encourage the markets? Let's find out what themes are going to drive the markets this week. Andrew Whitaker, our Senior Portfolio Manager for Fixed Income, joins me now to discuss policy rates and inflation. Andrew, I mentioned we're just five weeks out from the US elections. What are the two election themes the week ahead you are most focused on? Yeah, thanks, Craig. So as you alluded to, we're five weeks out from the US election and this week kicks off the first of three US presidential um, debates, which happens on Tuesday. So there's going to be an intense focus on this debate given um, the current polls, if we look at super forecasters or 538, currently place 76% chance, around 76% chance of a Biden winning the presidency and, a, and an equally high chance of Democrats taking both control of the House of Representatives and the Senate. So the markets are closely watching the US elections here and first debates like first impressions have a way of sticking to candidates. So for Biden, Trump has maybe done him a favour inadvertently by lowering expectations for Biden's performance, having spent spent months characterising Biden as somewhat doddering, sleepy and senile. So a passable performance from Biden may come off looking like a win for him. Um, but as we know, Biden's prone to the odd gaffe and that may do irrevocable um, damage to his campaign if that's the case this week. First debates um, can be a trap for incumbent presidents too. And we've seen this over, in, over the course of history. Uh, perhaps they've focus less on doing the work um, given their incumbency, but we've seen it with Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. We've seen it with George W. Bush characterising um, his job as being hard. And we've seen it with Barack Obama and Mitt Romney and for all Barack Obama's um, oratory prowess, he was worked over by Mitt Romney pretty well in 2012. So with these um, these election themes you just mentioned then being the, uh, the latest debates, what impact on interest rates and assets is likely? Yeah, so I think it's important to continue to watch the polls. So I think if, you know, if the polls continue to be wide like they currently are now with a um, Democrat um, victory all but assured, then that would probably be positive for risky assets given the certainty around that. So we would expect to see the US dollar weaken, we'd expect to see treasury yields move higher, and we'd expect to see um, equities also um, continue to move higher. However, if the polls continue to, if the polls tighten and the outcome becomes less certain, then I think that's definitely a risk for markets. We would expect to see um, downward pressure on treasury yields and also in other risky asset markets also. Fantastic. And Andrew, the Fed was very active last week. Uh, what were the key takeaways for you that you observed following their, their updates? Yeah, so we had um, 18 Fed speakers last week, so a massive week of Fed's Fed rhetoric, and they really failed to um, hammer home their new, their new average inflation targeting policy and, and the regime shift that they've, the biggest regime shift that the Fed's engendered in over 20 years of the last 20 years. And the reason for that was whilst they outlined the, their continued plan to be dovish and to allow an overshoot of inflation, they didn't really provide any more details or any additional tools which um, may allow that to happen. So I think this real circumspect approach and you could argue a lack of coordination from, from Fed speakers 
really in conjunction with the, the lack of progress on Capitol Hill around a fiscal deal has really led the markets to questioning where the next sugar rush is coming from here. And are the Fed, you know, continuing to run out of some some options? And if so, then it's really over to fiscal policy. We've continued to see uh, um, the Democrats and Republicans remain at loggerheads on that front. Sugar rush, you're making it very interesting, Andrew. Um, so let's finish off then on interest rate volatility. Where is it currently? So interest rate volatility, if we look at the Treasury Move Index, which is a measure of Treasury market volatility, it continues to remain very, very muted. So it's below 40 currently. It's around 37 at the moment. And the reason for the the low volatility in, in um, markets is just this ongoing um, dichotomy between demand and supply dynamics. So on, on the demand side, we're seeing central banks continue to step into the market. And on the supply side, we've seen just this massive issuance of, of nominal government debt. So we saw it last week in the US with 155 bill of, of nominal government bonds being issued. We saw it domestically with the continued um, massive issuance of government bonds and the successful issuance of the 2026 nominal bond deal. <clears throat> and despite the, the correction in risky assets we've seen lately, so we've had a 10% correction in the S&P, nominal yields have really failed to provide um, efficacy as an overall portfolio hedge at the moment. And this this continued balance in supply-demand dynamics continues to mean that volatility remains suppressed. And we favour playing nominal rates from the short side, given we feel that over time the supply dynamics continue to win out. But one market where we continue to remain constructive and is exhibiting a little bit more volatility is in the inflation space. So um, and part of the reason for that is that it, despite, you know, real yields and nominal yields continuing to diverge somewhat last week, we've continued to see softness in, in inflation break-even expectations as the markets continue to, you know, have no additional policy stimulus. We think that, you know, the continued intervention in this market, particularly in the US by the uh, Federal Reserve, so the Federal Reserve now owns around 15% of the US TIPS market, and just the ongoing um, wow. um, concert of of both monetary and fiscal policy working in tandem should continue to be supportive for inflation dynamics over the medium term. Thank you, Andrew Whitaker, for our US rates and policy update. We're now going to welcome Robert Swan, our head of risk premium and equities to the QPod. Robert, let's dive in um, with US futures. Where do they close on the week? Yeah, Craig, it was another, I guess, good week for US tech uh, with the NASDAQ finishing up 2.1%. However, the broader S&P index, it was actually down 60 basis points. Um, we saw some significant uh, outperformance of the US, however, against uh, Europe, with the FTSE finishing down 2% and the Euro stocks uh, 50 finishing down 3.4%. And does this set Australia then for a strong gain this morning? Rob, we just heard before from Andrew around the correction of the S&P. What does it all mean for the Australian market? Well, Craig, normally when I'm looking at these markets, I'm trying to use the futures markets to com to have a like-for-like -like comparison. And the Australian market had a pretty significant uh, week last week, finishing up 2.2% and really keeping up with US tech. A lot of that, it was a pretty strong uh, Friday for the, US, for the Australian market uh, with the announcement of the wineback of, or the planned wineback of the responsible lending uh, constraints on Australian banks. Uh, going back to the global side, were there any themes uh, that caught your eye, Robert? You did mention US tech, but is that US election having an impact? Definitely. If we look at the volatility markets, last week we saw the VIX, which is, I guess, our 30-day variant swap price. 
it was pretty unchanged during the week. However, we did see quite a steepening in the vol forward curve. And so the November contract, which sort of covers the month after the election, it was up two vol points to around about 33 vol. And we're seeing uh, volatility priced above 30 all the way out to January next year. Robert, let's switch to the commodity markets. Could you quickly update us on where gold, silver and oil finished the week? Sure, Craig. We saw a pretty big correction last week in precious metals uh, off the back of a very strong US dollar. Uh, Silver led the way down. It was down almost 15%. Gold was off 4.7%. And crude oil, it was pretty quiet. It was down about 2.7%. So you mentioned the correction in the metals market. So are there any sort of forward-looking indicators or signals from this? I think we have to put this correction in a bit of context. So since the end of June, silver was up almost 60%. Uh, And so even after its 14% correction, the market still is up around about 27% over the last couple of months. So it's probably not surprising that we sort of see this kind of correction, given the sort of rally that we saw in precious metals. Thank you, Robert Swan, for our update on risk premium and equities. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Market Moments podcast. We're now joined by Paul Nicholson, QIC's Director for Global Absolute Return and Income Funds. Paul, we've just heard from Andrew on the Move Index and Rob on expected risk asset volatility for the week ahead. Are Treasuries looking like a good hedge as we look forward? Yeah, this is something we've talked about a fair bit. Um, Income is a new defence was our most recent paper where we wrote about this effect, Craig, where um, will your government bonds act as that defensive nature and show those characteristics that they traditionally have versus your risk assets in your portfolio? Remains a massive question. You know, Looking at the markets, September and October tends to be what we call the midlife crisis of the markets. You know, they they always at this time of the year tend to see a little bit of ball. Um, Andrew mentioned, you know, the S and P peaked a trough um, intraday was about ten and a half percent. The Nasdaq's about thirteen. High yields about about half a percent wider, around fifty four basis points. But what's staggering about that, even with this sort of risk sentiment having turned a little bit negative and a little bit sort of uh, challenging last week, uh, we didn't see a huge move in investment grade bonds. Proportionately, investment grade bonds moved about 20% of what we would expect, and US Treasuries moved very little. And as Andrew said, the move index on volatility, forward looking volatility of the US Treasuries, has been completely decimated. And that's through all that yield curve control, all that purchasing, all the QE, and essentially it's just harnessing and holding down any sort of volatility in in the treasury market. So therefore, it's really not acting in that traditional defensive nature than we would expect. So you, you could interpret it two ways. You know, the first one being that it's 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 a very manipulated market at the moment and it's just not going to be able to. Or you could interpret, look, this correction, as Rob just mentioned, it's to be expected. We had some massive moves in the last few months. We've had a mild correction. And, you know, we'd be on the side that it's perhaps more of a buy-in opportunity than a time to panic. Fantastic. Let's switch to uh, credit, Paul. Each week, Richard uh, joins the QPod and tells us how strong credit supply is. Has anything changed this week? Not really. Um, week on week, we had a, you know, a very strong issuance market, $35 billion in the U.S. That's $150 billion so far for September that's only eight billion shy of the largest ever monthly issuance set uh, that was set last year. It was actually set in September last year. 
So uh, there's an element of seasonality where we expect this supply to be large in September, but there's no doubt about it, you know, year to date, the, the numbers are staggering in terms of the, the level of issuance that we've seen. What's particularly interesting has been, however, with the, the sort of change in sentiment and a little bit of, a little bit of volatility coming back in, that uh, what we're seeing, the initial price talk versus pricing has come down a bit. That's down to 27 basis points versus 35 last week. Uh, the, the book sizes on average in the supply and issuance have come down to 3.2 times oversubscribed. That's down from about 3.5 week on week. And so generally a little bit of softening on the issuance side uh, in credit markets. Now going forward, uh, looking into, into October, the seasonality is very strong for credit in October. Um, that tends to be... Uh, uh, in line with the earnings season in the US, it tends to be the blackout period. So particularly in investment grade bonds, we tend to see supply ease off in October and then of course ramp up again in November and then ease down into year end. Fantastic. Let's um, also move across to Europe because we can't go past the saga that is Brexit. Um, but is there any specific uh, that you've seen uh, in the last week or so, Paul, that might tempt the markets this week? It, it is the gift that keeps on giving Brexit. So four and a half years later, we're still talking about it. Um, nothing really, Craig. You know, what we've talked about in the last few weeks is that this internal markets bill that's been brought forward by the UK, and that's been the major sort of uh, cat amongst the pigeons a little bit, if, if we want of a word. Um, but essentially, this is a bargaining tool. And so what the British government has done is they have extended the final major vote on the internal markets bill till the day before the European Commission, which is the 15th and 16th of October. So this is all a bargaining chip and there's a lot of trading and throwing, horse trading. And, and as we know, we think the biggest prize is the European financial passport. And that's really what the British are after. Um, that's really what these negotiations are about. And, and look, you know, we, we know for sure that they're playing chicken a little bit here. And, um, and and things can go wrong when, when people do that. But essentially we expect a cliff edge, but we expect generally for things to be to be organized between the two parties. All right, wonderful there. Mate, a quick yes or no from you on the emerging markets. Are there any themes outside those we've already discussed on today's QPod that might specifically impact the EM in your opinion? Yeah, nothing's ever quick when you ask me, Craig, you know that. Um, but look, uh, EM was caught offside last week because of the you know, escalation in COVID, the economy and general risk sentiment, um, the, the, the sort of delay of the fiscal policy uh, in the US as well. Um, but what was really interesting was flows actually continued positively into emerging markets. So even though we saw cheapening of valuations, we actually saw a strong impetus and inflow. Um, one of the major uh, factors that happened last week was the FTSE Russell semi-annual review actually increased and included China bonds into the index. That's a massive uh, news item there. And we saw the largest flows into China, unsurprisingly, last, last week. And what was actually even more positive, Craig, than that is that most of those flows went into local currency rather than hard currency. So that's actually a very strong sentiment factor there. 
Yeah, very interesting. And I'll, I'll adjust, my, adjust my questions going forward to yes and for you, Paul. Thank you so much <laughs> for the update on Europe and the emerging markets. Andy Lin, our Senior Portfolio Manager for Currency and Research, is joining us now to talk about the trends he's seeing in the currency markets. Andy, we've just gone around the various markets just then, uh, providing the backdrop for the macro space. Can we please start with what was the main theme you're observing in the currency markets? Thanks, Craig. So I guess um, some of the themes that's been running through currency markets have been quite similar to what's um, already been talked about. I guess one of the main observations I would have is that last week we did see strong reversals of recent moves and uh, over recent months, I guess, looking across the broader currency suite, pretty much all, any currency that's rallied strongly over the last few months have performed quite poorly over the last week. So your examples are currencies such as the Norwegian Krona down by a bit over 4% um, last week after a very strong rally over the last few months. Aussie dollar, Mex peso, Kiwi and, and, and so forth. Andy, you just mentioned the Aussie dollar just saying just quickly, did Guy Bell's latest speech, the one he titled Australian Economy and uh, Monetary Policy, did that provide any support for the Aussie dollar then? No, not at all. So, so Guy DeBell's speech last week was very much a dovish speech where he um, outlined basically his views on uh, on the Aussie economy, which is basically one where the RBA has is um, pretty much missing their um, objectives in terms of inflation and growth. More, uh, perhaps even more importantly, is um, he's he's also outlined the um, the, the policy outlook, and um, he went through in great, um, pretty good detail in terms of the policy options that the RBA is looking at. Now, amongst the options that that um, that Guy Bell's examined, pretty much um, whether the whether the uh, whether it was feasible for the RBA to extend QE or or extend their yield curve control policy, term um, increasing the term funding facility rate cuts or currency invention. Now, the most likely, um, I guess, policy levers that guy's been leaning towards is probably more towards the term funding facility and 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 also perhaps um, another rate cut, um, not not into negative rates territory, mind you, but more um, just bringing the, um, the cash rate closer to towards zero. So regardless, it's been a, it's been a very dovish speech. And, uh, and the, on the back of that, we have seen um, market forecasters um, shift towards um, thinking that the RBA will be um, cutting rates uh, to, uh, either in the um, October or in the November meeting. Having said that, given the broader backdrop of a stronger US dollar, um, I think the, the speech itself has come at a very good time, a fortunate time for the RBA in terms of generating that uh, currency weakness. That That's very helpful for the RBA. So on the, on the week itself, the Aussie dollar has um, is, is pretty much the third worst performing currency within a developed market basket. Very good. And and Andy, when you look for the week ahead, we, we talked before about the US election starting to have a bit more of an impact now. Is that the main thing you're looking at in the currency markets? Yes. So I think as we're heading into this US election or closer to the US election um, timeline there, what we're probably most likely going to see is greater uncertainty. Um, now, US elections picking directional impacts for the market over, over these headlines, it's probably going to be very challenging. Um, but if we kind of look look ahead a bit more, um, 
I guess one of the key things in terms of looking at the medium term that would be on my mind is that regardless, regardless of which side wins, um, some of the policy outcomes that will come through is actually not that dissimilar in terms of both sides. Both sides are probably going to be advocating for more fiscal spending. Um, we're still going to get a very easy Fed policy um, looking looking ahead. Now, now this where the where the stimulus comes from into, uh, on the fiscal side may differ depending on which um, who wins. But regardless, it's I, I think looking over the the year ahead, we're, we're, what we're, what the market should be focused on beyond the election is that fiscal um, fiscal stimulus that's going to come regardless of which side wins. Fantastic. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and this is the QPod Market Moments. Thank you, Andy Lynn, for that currency update. We're now going to hear from Marika Ward, our senior credit and ESG manager, on how the market has interpreted those DeBell speech comments that Andy just referred to. Marika, DeBell outlined four policy options, as Andy just mentioned. In a couple of sentences, uh, what were they from your point of view? Thanks, Craig. As Andy sort of went through, it was a seminal, really dovish speech from DeBell. Four options that he described as potentially over-supporting the economy. So he talked about buying bonds further out the curve, but dismissed that because most bonds in Australia are most securities price off the front end. He talked about intervening in the foreign exchange market, but wasn't clear that this would be the most effective thing domestically. Talked about lowering interest rates without going negative. And he didn't cite any drawbacks for this. So the market's really jumped on that and is now expecting, as Andy said, a 10 basis point cut. He also, Craig, went into negative interest rates, but he cited a number of concerns about the concerns about the mixed evidence of this working globally. So four options so, there. So Marika, it sounds like that third option of the rate cut was the one the market really gravitated towards the most? It did, Craig. Uh, Look, the market sort of backed up a little bit slightly. The market was disappointed, I guess, by the lack of announcement around a long-end buying program. But then several leading economists came out starting the following day, probably with Bill Evans at Westpac, suggesting a mini rate cut. And they suggested that for October 6, which is budget day. Now, since then, you've had a number of journalists come out suggesting the RBA won't go on budget day. They'll give it a month or so. So, you know, potentially November for a mini cut if we're sitting at 25 basis points now and DeBell's saying we're not going to go negative or, you know, negative isn't sort of completely effective. That's why the market's thinking 10 basis points would make sense here. And Mareko, final question, just in a couple of sentences, is there any particular standout areas for investors following this uh, speech? Well, look, Craig, as you know, we see rates around current levels for the foreseeable, and we do think the RBA will continue with buying programs. So, you know, regardless of the timing of a cut, we think for clients, we'll see low interest rates for some time yet. And so that really sort of brings home the need for active management in bond programs. Fantastic. Thank you, Mareka, for that update. Patrick Taylor, Senior Credit Analyst, joins me now for a quick overview of last Friday's announcement from the Treasurer that the government plans to loosen Australia's responsible lending regulations. Patrick, what specifically is being relaxed in this latest policy announcement? 
Yeah, it was um, it was quite a big announcement from the government for a Friday. Um, the Treasurer announced plans to essentially remove many of the responsible lending obligations from the National Consumer Credit Protection Act. And this marks a reversal of a trend that has seen in tightening since around 2009. The changes also mean that ASIC will be removed from enforcing the responsible lending rules for the banks, with primary oversight now falling to APRA under its less pres- prescriptive prudential lending standards. And Patrick, what's the single largest impact that you can see this policy having on the domestic economy? Yeah, well, the changes will improve access to credit for households and small businesses. So they'll essentially improve the transmission of the cheap funding that the banks are getting via the term funding facility through to the broader economy, which is certainly a positive. Uh, The changes are also positive for the banks themselves, it's got to be said. They They'll reduce compliance costs somewhat and will also be positive for their lending growth. And so when you look at states like Victoria, which are looking to now emerge from their COVID lockdowns, will it be enough? Will will this be enough for the banks to introduce more risk? Uh, I mean, no policy is a silver bullet, but uh, it it should do. Yes, it should increase the amount of lending the banks take on. The, The Australian banks have become very cautious around their lending standards due to ASIC's focus on the issue and following that bruising Royal Commission. So this change is really designed to put the onus back onto the borrowers and should make lenders more willing to lend in circumstances where they may not have been previously. Fantastic. Thank you, Patrick, for that credit update. So in summary, the US election is starting to be observed by the markets, but it's the central banks that are continuing to move the markets. Will that Australian government policy change support the flow of credit and have the desired impact? I'm Craig Valenzuela. Thank you for listening to QPod's Market Moments podcast and have a super week ahead.